Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up hearts and minds and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. Father, our hearts are truly restless until they find their rest in you. God, we were made for you. And I pray, God, that this year we might live more fully into what we were always created to be, that we would be people that connect with you and live life with you. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So a while back, I listened to a rather disturbing lecture from a former Google exec who is now a doctoral candidate in the ethics of persuasion at Oxford. And uh, he was giving a talk about the attention economy. And and he points out in this lecture that Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, uh, YouTube, he says these are not actually social media companies. Uh, He said their business is not really media, it is actually attention. He said their goal, their whole business model is to get and maintain your attention. And so what do they do? Well, they, uh, they, they, they monitor your browsing history and they pay close attention to whatever it is you're talking to Alexa about and they extract information from you, and they utilize the best research on brain science and complex algorithms, and they use the information to carefully curate things that will get your attention. And of course, oftentimes the stuff that gets our attention is really not healthy stuff. And uh, it's stuff that oftentimes creates outrage or uh, maybe it's just fear-mongering or maybe it's just conspiracy theories or something funny or whatever. It just wastes your time. But he said the tech companies are trying to grab our attention and direct it toward goals that they have. And his main thesis is this. He He says, the attention economy is not on our side. Now, maybe you didn't need a Google exec to tell you that. Most of you know already the attention economy is not on your side. You think, I waste way too much time on TikTok or YouTube or watching another clip or whatever. Now, of course, Google Maps is on your side. Can I get a witness? Spotify is on my side. The Christchurch app is on your side. But the attention economy is not on your side. And his argument is pretty convincing. He says this. He says, he says, think about for a minute your goals. Think about like right now, new year, you think about the goals that you have for your life over this next year. And he says, what are those goals? He says, well, perhaps maybe you wanna spend a little bit more time with the family and cultivate deeper relationships with people you love. Or maybe you wanna exercise and eat right and get more healthy, get more in shape. Or or maybe you want to cultivate a deeper life with God. You want to read more books, or maybe you want to learn the piano or something. But but think about the goals that you have for your life. And now, now he asks, what are the goals that the tech companies have for you? He says, well, they want to maximize the time you spend on your device. Uh, They want to maximize the number of clicks, and they want to maximize the number of page views. And why? Well, because all of that equals more revenue, and so the best minds on planet Earth are being put towards the goals of utilizing one of the most addictive mediums ever created in order to get and maintain your attention and oftentimes waste your time. And he says, look, the purpose of our technology, it should be to enhance life, right? I mean, think about that. Technology is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But he says the purpose of it is to enhance your life. It's to improve your life. 
But here, here, instead, these tech companies have goals that are not making our life better. You know, in, in a lecture, uh, the, uh, the Netflix, uh, CEO of Netflix said this. She said, at Netflix, we are competing for our customers' time, and so our competitors are Snapchat, YouTube, Sleep, etc. And I just thought, like, your competitor is like, they are trying to get you to sleep less and spend more time on their devices. Are they, is it working for you? It's working for many of us. Our new normal is what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone calls continual partial attention. In other words, this kind of reality we are inhabiting, it is destroying, it is sabotaging our ability for deep thoughts, deep work, deep reflection, deep contemplation, all of the things that are necessary to cultivate the life of the soul and a life with God and a life with neighbor. All of these things are being sabotaged. They're being hindered by the devices that are constantly vying for our attention. Now, this is a big problem if you're a follower of Jesus. It's a big problem because Jesus said that it is those who are cultivating a life with God, who are living life with God, who ultimately will find their own lives bearing the fruits of deep and real peace, of fullness of joy. These are the kind of people that will become people of love And I don't know about you, but when I think about my own life and the kind of human I want to become, I do want to be at the core of my being. I think you do too. I want to be a person of deep peace and a fullness of joy, and I want to be a person of love. And, 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 and yet here, these devices, this, this culture we inhabit, it's just not serving us that well. So is there anything that can be done about that? You know, we, we're beginning the year starting a new series called Abide, Practicing the Presence of God. And we're gonna be talking together about how Jesus' goal is to give us fullness of life, how that life is found in a deepening relationship with God And we're going to be talking together about some of the exercises, some of the practices, some of the disciplines that help us cultivate that life with God. But I want to begin today by just focusing your attention on this one single word, abide. And I want to do that by inviting you to explore this little teaching that Jesus gives on the very eve of his crucifixion. Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room and he is teaching them that which is most important for them to hear on the very final hours he has with them. And and there, as he's teaching them, he talks to them about how their life with God is analogous to a vine or to a branch that is abiding in a vine. And listen how he puts it. He says this, He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus, in this this metaphor, draws upon a well-worn symbol from the Old Testament, oftentimes used to apply to the nation of Israel. Israel, throughout the Old Testament prophets, is often referred to or described as a vine or a vineyard that God has planted and that then he goes and looks to to bear him fruit. In fact, there's a passage in Isaiah where God talks about this vineyard he plants and he goes into the vineyard looking for the fruit that he wants from it. And the text says, what is the fruit God is looking for? 
He is looking for, the text says, righteousness and justice. Those two words, righteousness and justice, are important terms in the Old Testament used to describe what God wants from his people. Righteousness is right relatedness to our neighbors and to God. It is covenant faithfulness. He says, I'm looking for that. And then justice is that active engagement to set wrongs to right. And so he says, I went into my vineyard looking for people who are living faithful lives toward neighbor and toward God, people who are setting the world to right where there's wrongs. And he says, but instead I found murder and bloodshed. I didn't find what I was looking for. And here Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the true vine. Jesus in this moment is saying in essence, I am the true Israel, the true covenant faithful one who has come to bear the fruit that the Father is looking for. But then he says something interesting. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Here he has drawn an analogy for what it means to be one of his disciples, one of Jesus' followers. It means you are like a branch that's attached to the vine. In other words, if Jesus is the true faithful one who lives his life faithfully to God, when you're attached to him, it's as if that infinite divine life that is Jesus made, or God made flesh among us in Jesus, you are attached to that life and that pulsating life in you begins to do things. It begins to change your life and new stuff starts to grow in your life. And he says, but not everybody is experiencing that. There are some branches that are branches in name only They are only cosmetic. They're not really attached to the vine. He says, my father takes those ones away. But the ones that are bearing fruit, he says, he prunes, which is one frame for you to look at the suffering and the trials and the difficulties you experience in your life. Sometimes God allows things to happen to us. And yeah, oftentimes it's chaos, it's darkness, it's trouble. But there are things God can use in your life to bring more fruit. You know, I don't think there's a person in this room who would say that the, you know, it's often the case that the most important things I've ever learned in life were not learned in periods where everything was good. It was learned through those deepest trials of life. Every branch in me that bears fruit, I prune so that they might bear more fruit. But the point is that the Father is looking for fruitful branches. And he says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. It's as if Jesus says to his disciples, already my challenging, transformative word, my call to discipleship, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your enemies, uh, to not seek the best places at the tables, to not put yourself ahead of others. He says, I am already molding you and shaping you and cleansing you by my word so that you can be fruitful. And he goes on. He says, then abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, he appeals to something I think all of us want in our life fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, no doubt it is righteousness and justice. 
It is a, a, an active engagement to set wrongs to right in the world. It is faithfulness to neighbor. Fruit, according to Jesus, is also the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. He says, you want to see these virtues grow out from your life. He says, do you want fruit, which is also, you could say, meaningful impact, your life making a difference? He says, well, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it without me. You need to abide in me. He says, here is the secret. Here is the key to a life of deep meaning, abiding peace, fullness of joy, a life that is marked preeminently by love, he says, it is when you remain, it is when you abide in me. For without me, you can do nothing. And he goes on, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. We think, yikes, you know? Apparently, the master gardener is serious about fruit bearing. Now, it's easy to think that Jesus might be here talking about the world being cast off and burned, but he's not really talking about that in this text. He's talking about people who present to be religious, they present to be churchgoers, but when you look below the surface, there is no real abiding fruit. There's no character formation, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no love, there's no kindness and gentleness and self-control. And he says, it's all just cosmetic. But in contrast, he says, if you abide in me, those are the ones who don't abide, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says, those who are abiding in me experience this rich life of conversation and prayer with me. Now, again, it's easy to get distracted by that last part, ask, and it will be done for you. It sounds almost like Jesus is presenting himself to be a genie in the bottle. If you're just doing it right and you get the right formula or the incantation, it's like magic, you know? Ask, and it shall be done for you. But that's to ignore the context. It's a specific kind of asking about a specific kind of thing. It is those who want to abide more deeply in God, who want to bear more fruit, as they are asking for those goods, a greater level of virtue and character change and lifelong impact and righteousness and justice, it's those who will find their prayers heard and answered by me. A life of fruitfulness is the result of abiding. And then he goes on, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then he says this, these stunning words, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now just pause, some of you came to church this morning to hear those words. Jesus says, think for a moment about that infinite, eternal communion of love. 
that relationship that has existed long before you and me or the plants and the trees or the cosmos, the stars in the sky, that eternal, that durable, that subsisting, that infinite, eternal God who exists in an eternal communion of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says there's this unbreakable bond of love, infinite ocean of love between Father and Son. And he says here these stunning words, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's in past tense because his love took on historical manifestation in the past when the infinite eternal love of God took on flesh and walked among us and gave himself fully and unreservedly for us on the cross. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so abide. Remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's as if he's saying, look, this is not just a matter of you resting in my love that I have for you. Yes, that's it. But it's also you resting and abiding in the practice of love toward neighbor. And as you As you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And our text ends. Ten times in this passage, Jesus highlights and he uses this term abide. And and I want us just to, to, to stand back and reflect on that word and I want to make two simple observations. You know, it is abiding in Christ. It is abiding in God that ultimately results in the kind of life we want. But what does it mean to abide? I mean, what is Jesus even talking about here? I think it's really important. You know, sometimes you come to a text like this in the Bible, and this is a really familiar passage. You know, abide in me as a, vine, as a branch abides in a vine, so you must abide in me. And we repeat it, and we quote it, and we put it on calendars and such like this. But what does it mean to abide? Like, what is Jesus thinking about, and what is he talking about? And his disciples must have been asking that question because Jesus up to this point in his discourse, he keeps talking about how he is going to leave. And they're thinking, how am I gonna abide with him after you leave? And he says, well, I'm gonna send my spirit, my presence is going to be with you after I leave. It will be better once I leave, my presence will be with you. Abide in me, abide in my presence by my spirit that I'm pouring out on you. But again, what exactly does that mean? Well, I want to suggest it means at least two things. Number one, to abide is to make your home in the presence of God. To abide is to make your home in the presence of God. You know, the noun form of the word, or the noun form of the verb abide is what? Abode. Wait, did you catch that? The noun form of the word abide is Abode, what's an abode? It's a home. And that's why uh, in the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson translates this phrase, make your home in me. Make your home in me. When I was in high school, I had a friend whose name was Carl. He was a real homebody, loved to be home. And he always referred to his home as his, quote, natural habitat. (laughs) 
It was where he loved to abide, you know? And, and Jesus is saying, look, make my presence, make the presence of God your natural habitat and your abode. But again, what does that mean? Go to church all day? You know, are we talking about sitting holed up in a monastery all day long? How do you abide in the presence of God anyway? Well, I want to suggest that abiding in God's presence, to make your home in the presence of God, means learning to live to be two places at once. It means to, to, to be learning how to wake up in the morning and to be in the presence of God. You say, I'm grumpy in the morning. God doesn't even like to be with me in the morning. You know, before 7 a.m., Jesus doesn't even like me. No, he does. It means to wake up in the morning and to be in the presence of God. It means to brush your teeth and to be in the presence of God. It means to be answering emails and to be in the presence of God. It means to be uh, hanging out with your roommates, uh, playing video games, and to be in the presence of God. It means to uh, be out surfing or on a hike and to be in the presence of God. It, it, to be in the presence of God means learning to be in two places at once. Now, this is an art, and it takes a life of practice. You know, there was uh, a monk back in the 17th century, a very famous, famous, or he ultimately became famous. His name was Lawrence, uh, Brother Lawrence. And you may have heard of him. He wrote a little book called uh, The Practice of the Presence of God. I have it right here. This is actually Pastor Robert's copy of it, which is a lovely little, uh, it's a great copy, right? If you want a cool copy of any book, just go and raid Robert's library and steal one. <laughs> but check this out. You know, um, he was a fairly clumsy, awkward a uh, fairly untalented, unimpressive guy, and he went into war, was injured, got out of war, and just committed his life to God and went to a monastery, never made it to the role of priest or bishop or preacher or teacher. Instead, he played the role of dishwasher his whole life. He was a dishwasher. A little bit later, he was promoted to be the guy who repaired sandals. And, uh, but he cultivated such a powerful and a compelling life with God that people began to hear about it and travel from all over and learn from him. And they wrote down letters, he would write letters to people who would ask him questions and they would come see him and stuff would be written down. And it was put together in this little book and it's just 60, 70 pages. I reread it again this week. I'd commend this to you, but listen to what he says. He says, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, you know, while uh, the, 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 the grumpy monks in the morning are coming in and saying, where's my soup? You know, where's my oatmeal? He says, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees the blessed sacrament. Dallas Willard puts the same idea like this. I think drawing upon this, Dallas Willard is something of, of the closest thing the evangelical world had to a saint, had to a brother Lawrence, and he said this. He said, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Now, he continues, just long quote alert, 
But listen to what he says. It's, it's worth it. Every word. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. What a gentle way of putting it, right? Your burdensome habit of dwelling on things less than God, which most of us do most of the day. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north, no matter how the compass is moved. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. So he says, we need to keep God before us, and to do it, it takes practice and intentionality. You know, uh, Robert and I have a a mutual friend uh, uh, named Steve Porter, and Steve uh, was the director of the spiritual formation program at Biola University, and he was mentored by Dallas Willard. And he wrote a chapter in a book about Dallas after his death, and he was talking about a curious practice that Dallas engaged, like a habit Dallas had that helped him direct his mind to, to, to God. And he asked Dallas one day, he said, hey, so how do you do it? You know, how do you do it? He says, give me, give me something that you do to help practice the presence of God. He said, well, he says, when I'm driving to work, he drove out to USC, he was a professor of philosophy at USC. He said, when I drive out to USC, he says, I always imagine Jesus sitting in the passenger seat and I engage in a conversation with him as I imagine him there. And Steve Porter's like, so that's it. (laughs) You imagine Jesus in the seat next to you. But what was he doing? He was doing the very thing was he was, that he talks about here was he was seeking to direct and redirect his mind constantly on God. And so to abide is to practice the presence of God. It is to make your home the presence of God. But I want you to see in this text, Jesus presses this further. He doesn't just talk about making your home in the presence of God. He's more specific than that. Jesus in our text talks about making our home in the love of God. You could say making your home resting in the loving presence of God. And again, listen to chapter 15, verse verse 10 and 11 are translated in the message translation. Eugene Peterson writes, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Make yourselves at home in my love. Make yourselves at home in my love. Friends, this is an invitation It's an invitation to be at ease and to be at rest and to make your your home, the thing you build your life on, your identity on, the very love of God made incarnate in Jesus Christ, that love that traversed heaven and earth to come into this world, to take on the tyrants of sin and death and, and darkness and to vanquish the tyrant that holds us captive and to set us free so that we can live into this experience and of God's presence and his love. You know, You've heard that saying, uh, it was a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. I was in Orlando. 
in February, which actually Orlando was decently nice in February, you know, and we went to Universal, but it was hot even in February in Orlando at Universal. I was like, people come here in July and they spend thousands of dollars to take their children here for multiple days. What is wrong with the human race? But there are some places there, they're, they're nice to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. And then there's places that are important to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. I visited Dachau in Germany and walked through the hallways of a concentration camp. And it was an important, a good place for me to be. It did something to me. I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, and was just stunned at the horror and the terror of white supremacy instantiated in laws that destroyed people's lives. And that was a good and important place for me to be. There are nice places to visit. There are important places to visit, but I I wouldn't want to live in Dachau, and I wouldn't want to live in the Civil Rights Museum. Listen, there are important places for you to visit, some to to take long visits. There are nice places for you to visit, and there's good places for you to go. You know, there's trauma in your past that needs to be revisited by some of you. And there is sins and failures that you need to go back to and own and name. There are dysfunctional patterns in your home and in your family that you need to go back and visit and and take notice of. There are truths about God that are important to visit. The truth of God's justice and his judgment and his wrath, these are important truths. There's important places for us to visit. There are nice places for us to visit, but none of these are the places where God says, or where Jesus says here, you need to live and make your home. Where we are invited to make our home, and when I'm talking about our home, it's the place that ultimately nourishes us and defines us and changes us. He says, it is in my infinite and eternal love made flesh among you in Jesus. This is where you are invited to live. You know, I was, uh, I, I was given a book over the holidays by somebody in our congregation, Mary Wallstein, uh, by a Catholic philosopher and theologian whose name is Peter Kreft. And the book was entitled, get this, I Surf, Therefore I Am. <laughs> and it's an awesome book. And I was, I, it's delightful. It's pretty humorous and funny. And, and he made me think, maybe I am better than everyone else because I surf. No, I just, he didn't make me think, but he did make me think about the beauty and wonder of surfing. Sean knows, yeah. But um, he, 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 in this book, he draws this analogy between God and the ocean and our engagement with God and going surfing. And he puts it like this. He says, you know, um, he says, when, when you go to the ocean, he says, think about this. And I was thinking, I went surfing a couple weeks ago and I was, I was meditating on this while I was out in the ocean. He says, he says, think about the ocean. He says, when you paddle out and go surfing, you contribute absolutely nothing to the fullness of that ocean. You bring nothing, you contribute nothing, you bring nothing to the ocean. You are only there as a recipient. And receive you may and you can You can receive that ocean, you can drop into a wave, you can pull into a barrel, and you can be in the very interior of the life of that ocean and hear that thing. You're just like, it's like a gift, and, and you're doing nothing to bring to it. He says, this is like God. 
When we engage with God, we bring to him, you know, we, we, we go out, as it were, you know, bringing something of ourselves to him, but we can add nothing to God's fullness. How can you add to infinity? He is fullness, eternal and infinite fullness within his self. We go and we contribute nothing, but we receive everything. And Jesus says, rest in that infinite love and ocean that you can only receive. You are welcome to come out and float on me and to drop in with me and to enjoy me and, and you bring nothing to me. He is inviting us to find our home and to rest in his love. Now, let's just close like this. Listen, abiding in the presence and the love of God, to make God's love and his presence your home in an experiential way that actually transforms your life and begins to produce new character and forms and shapes you into a person of love who knows deep wells of peace and fullness of joy over the long course of your life growing in those things. If you are going to abide in the presence and the love of God, it will take intentionality and practice. The author and spiritual writer William Paulsell put it like this. He says, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization of our own lives. You know, we have to ask, I think, are we game this year in 2023 for some new intentional commitments are we willing to reorganize how we spend our time in life? He says it will require some intentional commitment, some reorganization of our lives, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and a clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. As we said at the beginning of our talk today, you know, we are losing our ability to contemplate it is not conditioned in our bodies to even sit still anymore, to think and to contemplate and to pray and to think and to sit. We, our brains are being rewired. And so we have got to be intentional. We have got to take some counterformational steps and to move in a different direction. And friends, you know, within the, the church, sometimes we talk about uh, spiritual disciplines or spiritual exercises or practices. Historically, it's involved things like Bible reading and study and silence and solitude and Sabbath and prayer and fasting and so on and so forth. Listen, those are, th those are, those are practices and, and exercises that are aimed toward a specific end. They're not ends in and of themselves. They're not goods in and of themselves. They're there because they help do something over the long course of practice. They help condition your bodies and your heart and your mind to practice the presence of God and to make your home in the love of God. You know, this year we put together a little booklet that captures some of the spiritual practices that the church has done for years. And I want to encourage you, especially some of you, you know, you've got other things going on. You've got, your, you've got spiritual disciplines you've been doing for 10, 30, 50 years. 
and we need you. We want to learn about that from you. But some of you, you want to get started on doing some spiritual practices. You want to put your phone down more. You want to get do not disturb on more. Uh, you want to put some boundaries on your kind of absorption and your consumption of technology that is ubiquitous. I would encourage you to take this and to begin to utilize this as a resource. And um, so just a couple kind of words about this. Uh, I'm going to do a little YouTube. And, you know, anybody here like you need to fix something on your car? Where do you go? YouTube. And you want to uh, learn how to cook a certain kind of pot roast for Christmas Eve dinner. That's what I did. You go to YouTube. This week, I'm going to put together a little YouTube in-service, if you're like, how do I use this Abide booklet again? But I just want to point out what it, it offers. It offers a Bible reading schedule uh, so that it'll take you through the New Testament once this year and about a third of the Old Testament over the course of the year. There's a series of set guided prayers for morning and evening prayer, a week's worth that you can go and recycle week after week after week. Uh, there's uh, a section called Praying Through the Day where there's a morning prayer, a lunchtime prayer, a prayer before beginning the day's work, a prayer before you go to sleep at night. Uh, there's a, a, a set prayer for praying for the Lord's Prayer. It takes you through the Lord's Prayer in a week. And then there's a bunch of biblical prayers. And then there's something called the Daily Examine, which helps you do some self-examination of your own life. And so pick up uh, a copy of this. Now, a couple brief things. Uh, this practice or the practices in this book or any other spiritual practices are not a quick fix. They're not a pill you take. And if you do every day for the next six months, you're not going to be depressed anymore and you're not going to have sadness anymore and you're going to know fullness of joy. Life doesn't work like that, right? We are complex, complicated people. So it's not a pill. It's not a quick fix. This is something that's intended to be practiced over the long course of your life. Secondly, it's not a badge. It's not a badge you wear to say, look what I've done. I read my Bible and pray every day. Aren't I awesome and impressive? You know, Pastor Josh, I've been doing this every day this week, or I'm, you know, I read it three days in the new year, and so I'm taking pictures of myself and putting it on an Instagram or whatever. Show everyone how spiritual I am. No, it's not a badge. Uh, it is spiritual exercises. These are practices we engage in to, to condition our body. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to get into specifics, some of these specific practices. The, today is just an intro, and we're going to get into kind of like the, the meat of this. But listen, to engage in new practices, to reorient your life around a new set of disciplines that help you cultivate your life with God. It takes work and intentionality, but friends, it is well worth it. You know, I think if the church is going to be a compelling witness for Jesus in this increasingly post-Christian secular age, I think our only way to do it is for us to experience transformed lives ourselves and to bear witness to the power of God in a person's life, to bring joy and peace and to form us into people of love. Dallas Willard put it like this, and we'll close with this quote. He said, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done their best, as best as they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and in power. 
The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that it's pitching its message too low. So friends, let's be a community that grows in spiritual character and depth, that seeks to root our hearts and our lives in the love of God and the presence of God. Now we're closing today at the Lord's table, which is actually among the most essential of all spiritual practices you will engage in. It's in this practice that we are reminded that the most profound word that Jesus speaks in this text is not, you abide in me. That's, prof- that is, that's profound and it's thought-provoking, but it's not the most profound thing Jesus says. It's not his command for us to make, his ho- make our homes in him. That makes sense. We ought to do that. We are creatures. That's God. The most profound Jesus things Jesus says in this text is he says, abide in me, make your home in me as I abide and make my home in you. The most profound, stunning, breathtaking truth in the history of the cosmos is that the infinite and eternal God became flesh and made his home among us and that he has poured out his spirit on the church so that he might continue to be at home in us. And he's given us this practice to take his body and blood and to take it in us, to say it is my life given for you, my life by my spirit pulsating within you that ultimately is what will sustain and nurture your soul over the long course of life.